Welcome back to To The Point. I am Benjamin Gadan, Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Latin American Program. COVID-19 has battered Latin America, where the death toll has surpassed 400,000 and more than 11 million people have tested positive for the virus. The pandemic has also battered the region's already fragile economies, ballooning joblessness and worsening poverty. The International Monetary Fund says economic activity will collapse by 8.1% this year, and per capita income won't recover to pre-pandemic levels until 2025, the world's slowest projected recovery. To hear how Latin America can dig itself out of this deep economic hole, we're excited to launch a new series, A Path Out of Crisis, Conversations with Leading Latin American Economists. It's hosted by my colleague, Lucio Castro, and features some of Latin America's most prominent economists. Lucio is a global fellow at the Wilson Center, a research fellow at Harvard Center for International Development, and a member of Harvard's COVID-19 task force. He served as vice minister in Argentina's production ministry under President Mauricio Macri and as alternate executive director at the Inter-American Development Bank. Lucio, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here in this uh, first uh, cycle of conversation we lead in uh, Latin American economies, a path out of crisis. And for this first interview, we have the pleasure of having with us Dr. Piero Gessi. He's a PhD in economics from Berkeley. He has been professor at John Hopkins University and consultant for various international financial organizations. And also, he has a very long and important career in emerging markets, both at Barclays and Deutsche Bank. And he has been also the Ministry of Economy of Peru uh, with Olanta Omala between 2014 and 2016. And the idea of having uh, Piero here is to talk a bit about Peru, but more, more importantly, to talk about Latin America in the time of COVID. So without further ado, uh, Piero, I would like to ask you the first question. And it's related to informality. You, you have been uh, emphasizing for a long time on the need to reduce informality in Peru. So I would like to ask you how relevant have been the very high levels of informality of around 70% of the labor, labor force in Peru in explaining the quite negative outcomes, both in terms of health indicators, the number of deaths per million, and almost the un unprecedented contraction of the Peruvian economies in the, in the midst of this pandemic. So, and also, this has been in spite of Peru launching one of the largest income support packages as a percentage of GDP in Latin America. So if you can comment on that, we would really like to have your opinion on that. Great. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation, Lucio. Uh, and yes, indeed, uh, Peru uh, has been a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, to extend that, um, President Vizcarra decreed a very early and very strict lockdown. But already, after four or five weeks, it became obvious that something wasn't working that well. And uh, obviously, exposed uh, has been the result of uh, agglomerations, uh, the result of uh, very, you know, like uh, households that are very crowded uh, and informality. People were, were able to keep the lockdown for a few weeks, but after a while, Right. Uh, despite the, the, the support package, uh, people had to go out to work. So um, we only had we really had a very long first wave. Right. That basically started from uh, March and lasted until August. Pretty much there was no I mean, this was a continuation of a very long wave that never stopped until 
until August, we're suddenly stopped. No, it has been coming down significantly in terms of cases, in terms of, in terms of death. But of course, in the meantime, we had, even using official numbers, uh, the highest uh, death to uh, per capita in the world in terms of COVID, and one of the largest contractions in terms of economic activity. I would say that contrary to the general perception, the package hasn't been that large. So I don't think the support policies have been uh, uh, as much as the headline numbers would suggest. So I think we have to, if we have to uh, explain, expose, and of course everybody can be, you know, Monday morning quarterback, um, the, the, the problems with, with the Peruvian uh, response, I think, or, or, the, or the results of, the, of, of COVID, I think I would uh, break it down into first a structural uh, right, uh, reasons related to unemployment, crowded uh, households, uh, etc., and policies, both at the sanitary level and the, at the fiscal level, no? I mean, at the macro level. In terms of sanitary level, I don't think. Peru ever, so we had a very strict lockdown that at the same time uh, induced agglomeration. Now that was the, a very clear mistake from the beginning. So because the hours were so tight, right? Uh, people had to leave at the same hours and in mercados, the abastos, right? That were closed spaces that are an excellent opportunity to, for that virus to propagate. So I think that was a very obvious mistake that Peru made very early on. So tightened so much that was uh, the left people living at you know the same time, the same places. And that implied uh, significant alterations that we know now are a lot more important than, uh, than other stuff like cleaning your hands, no? Uh, that was the first uh, thing. So it was a combination of uh, structures, and some uh, at the policy level, like uh, errors, I think, at both the sanitary level and the fiscal level. In terms of sanitary level, was this, uh, you know, like that, the strict lockdown that induced agglomerations. We never really put together and uh, right the testing and the tracing program. I mean, Peru has been using serological tests all along. We really ne okay. never developed the capability for molecular tests. So at some point, Peru had incredible number of, number of uh, right of uh, daily tests but 95% were uh, right uh, serological tests no molecular tests so that has been a terrible mistake and uh, at the I, I think at the economic level the probably the main one of the main problems has not been support uh, the labor market i think uh, the labor market support has been to like I mean, almost non-existent. There was an initial bonus, an initial subsidy to the payroll, but no more than that. Uh, um, so it's not a it's not a terrible. I mean, exposed as I said, we can always explain the bad performance, but uh, I would say it have been a combination of structural reasons, uh, relatively poor policy decisions, particularly on the on the sanitary health front, and an inability to. Uh, make correct mistakes, no? Because I think mm. like uh, we all know that COVID has is something that we don't know. We, I mean, we are learning every day. We're still learning, uh, but the ability to 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 learn from what we have seen and make adjustments and corrections has not been particularly present uh, in the government. All that said, 
the situation is a lot different now than before. Uh, you have seen, if you see that the, uh, the right, active cases and, and death, I think has been coming down significantly. The uh, hospitals and uh, right uh, ICUs are not crowded anymore. So unlike other countries, certainly in the northern hemisphere, but uh, Peru is uh, right now in a mar in the in the best place it has been since March in terms of let the evolution of the pandemic. Let me let me stop you there and let me play also devil's advocate because I mean uh, what you mentioned, particularly in terms of the fiscal response, is uh, that was quite ineffective and there were also some design problems. But I was wondering, in a country where seventy percent or more of the population is informal and where many firms are in the informal, how you reach uh, both households and firms? I know that most of the fiscal effort. Uh, went through some system of guarantees in the formal financial system. But most of the companies in Peru are not formal. So I was wondering, I mean, even with the best of intentions, what you would do if you would be in the government, given those restrictions that you have in government, particularly for the fiscal response. I mean, and that's a problem that's not unique of Peru. That's something that we have seen in other countries in Latin America, even with lower levels than informality, even in, in my country, in Argentina. So if you can comment on that, it yeah, would be I great. I think that's an excellent question, and there is a clear answer. Uh, let, let, let's, we can think of Peru as having like two financial sectors, right? I mean, the, 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 the banking system, and then all these micro enterprises, uh, micro, right? Uh, finance enterprises, right? Uh, co cooperatives, uh, savings and loans, cooperatives, etc. Those uh, firms are the ones that normally lend to the informal sector and really weigh down the pyramid. Okay. So uh, the problem is that Reactiva Peru, which is uh, the, um, the, the program that you mentioned, the government guarantees program, basically the government guaranteed, guaranteed loans that were. Uh, that could be a, a right a report at the central bank, right? The central bank issue those solace to the banks, but it was very, very initially at least was very limited that type of institution that uh, that would be able to access to Reactiva Peru. So most of them were the large banks that just don't lend to the uh, MIPES and certainly don't lend don't lend to the informal MIPES. So you had in the first few months a channel that basically, in a way, exacerbated inequality because money went to the uh, to those firms that actually required less money, and the guys who were uh, more needed didn't have access to Reactiva because that the, uh, the microfinance uh, firms that lend them didn't didn't have access to the window of the central bank. Of Reactiva Peru. Peru has a very interesting, uh, because there's no first, lately, there's, there's a development bank, so there's no Banco del Estado or BNDS or whatever. Peru has developed a very sophisticated micro lending, one of the most sophisticated in the world. Uh, but uh, the access uh, of those savings and loans cooperatives and finance. Uh, companies to uh, government guarantees has been very limited. So I think uh, there's one area to improve. A second area is that, of course, 
these savings and loans cooperatives and all these microenterprises have been hit because of the pandemic. And what I have been asking since April, actually, is that you have to capitalize them. Because even if you give them money and these, uh, and these firms are concerned about the quality of the trade portfolio, they're not going to lend. And, and so you need to improve their uh, right, the ratios and some uh, short-term government capitalization, subordinate bonds or whatever to strengthen their, their ratios and their, right, their, uh, uh, their balance sheet should be, it's necessary for them to lend more. So that has been something that hasn't been done and they keep asking even now. So at the end of the day, has been uh, the own economy has survived uh, with uh, more informality, with more, right? I mean, like, uh, and for whatever reason, the own dynamics of the virus, of the pandemia, seem to have uh, work. So there's some white person, so RT probably is now below one. I mean, that's the, I mean, mm. something has happened, right? I mean, like, I don't think we got herd immunity in the a strict sense of herd immunity, but certainly there's something there where the situation, where cases are coming down and death, death are coming, all the numbers in the pandemic are coming down. And that's a... Let me, let me stop you there. And, and that's, I mean, it's very interesting what you are stressing, because, I mean, I was going to ask you why the, the numbers are improving. I mean, in terms of the number of deaths per million and also the number of, of cases, and you already have responded to that. But I have a question more on the way forward, because, I mean, even though the numbers look much better now, when you look at, at what's going on in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in Europe, but more, more recently in, in the U.S., the numbers seem to be going up again, and there seems to be also second wave. And you could think that there is something that, you know, some economists like, like John Cochrane and others have been describing, like, you know, that the virus is becoming endemic. Without the vaccination, what people basically do is they adjust their behavior to risk the risk of contagion. So they start to wear masks and, you know, uh, engage in social distancing. And then when things seem to be improved, people just relax and they, they, don't, they don't engage in these kind of less risky behaviors. And then what happens? Cases go up. So I was going to ask you, the question is, is Peru now better prepared for a potential second wave? I mean, both on the health uh, camp, both in the health front, but also in the macroeconomic front, particularly on the fiscal front. I think Peru is better prepared in the, on the health front, uh, certainly. There has been some right, increased capabilities in terms of uh, ICUs, uh, in terms of hospital beds, uh, etc. Uh, but I, let's say, I, I, I actually think that there's something that has happened, which is that the mandatory mask has been very compliant and social distancing keeps very compliant. I mean, people, I, have, I don't leave my house very often and, and uh, many people, I mean, if you're in the streets, everybody's using a, a mask. I mean, that's, there's no informality there. So compliance is 100%. And I have never seen anything complete 100% in Peru. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very, so there's people are just that were so scared and that scariness is not going out uh, easily. So if, so probably what happened is that, of course, the uh, basic reproduction number that are zero came down, let's say, to 
uh, 1.3, 1.4, whatever. And then you have because one, so we had a, fa a massive failure. So you probably had 35% of Peruvians having uh, uh, infected. You had like the excess death in Peru is like 90,000. If you use reasonable numbers of uh, right of fatality rates, you probably may have, easy, you can come up with 50% of population uh, being infected. I think that's an exaggeration, but you could easily have 30%. With the 30% infected people, you already could have the RT, the effective reproduction number below one. And that can explain probably the evolution. As you said, that's of course a very fragile equilibrium. It's a precarious right. equilibrium because it depends on, pe on people still uh, changing behavior. But I think it's very different from Europe, very different from the US where the percentage of people infected is a lot lower because the failure hasn't been that massive because you really were able in Europe to control the, the pandemia, uh, right? And the lockdowns worked. The lockdown didn't work in Peru. So you had uh, right, some sort of, right? I mean, like a massive uh, uh, right, uh, infection. And you have seen it region by region. Initially it was in the Amazonian re uh, regions. You had huge spikes in April and suddenly collapsed in May. And it was not a result of lockdowns or policy. It was a result of a lot of people being infected. Of course, as you have seen the studies, I mean, we don't know how long this uh, right, immunity lasts. But uh, so Peru is very, I would say that I'm not that pessimistic. I don't think it's so easy to say that we're going to have a second wave. Um, I, I think we could avoid a second wave at least for a few months. It's not uh, immediate. And I think if it does happen, I think we have uh, uh, more capabilities in the health uh, sector. Now, on the fiscal front, uh, of course, our balance sheet has been, I mean, like one of the, we were the jewel, right? I mean, uh, uh, together with Chile, Peru was a star, the macroeconomic star in Latin America. You mentioned, you know, I, I had prior to being in the, devoted to productive development policies and productive diversification was a macrofinance macro guy in Deutsche Bank and Barclays. And Peru has been the star of the region together with Chile with the tightest spreads, the best great rating. So our mac we got our macro right um, and was not enough, right? Clearly was not enough to avoid this very severe contraction. And uh, part of that is because it was not I don't think was particularly well designed. I think it's very easy to expose uh, to, uh, to, 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 to say that everything is explained because of informality. I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think you had more uh, degrees of uh, freedom and we didn't use them all. Great. Uh, so, but let me take you a bit more forward and I mean, in a scenario that we might not have a vaccine until, let's say, the end of next year available for all the Latin Americans and maybe for many of the low, high, middle income countries, maybe in the North northern Hemisphere that might be available, but most likely that's not going to happen. So, and, and we're going to see this uh, a scenario where the economy is kind of growing in, intermittently. Because you have to go back to lockdowns, so maybe more limited way, more limited fashion, regionally, uh, for certain groups of the population. How how do you think Peru is going to cope with this uh, scenario, which obviously is not uh, the one that you're going to see a very strong recovery from the global economy, given 
the continuation right. of, of lockdowns. No, I think we, we are in a, right, we were already in a fragile situation prior to COVID, right? The high informality that you, you suggested, the growth rate uh, has been coming down, let's say the uh, potential growth has been coming down from around 5% a few years before to no, no, uh, not larger than, not higher than 3%. And we had two percent growth prior year. So the situation that what the pandemic did is what made obvious exacerbate a problem we had, which mm. is our growth model wasn't worker uh, working properly, and it was not. Uh, we know, of course, it wasn't enough to have a strong macro, and uh, so the challenge is huge. We have presidential elections next year. Uh, we have, of course, a the risk of populism, right, has increased significantly. We have a Congress, right, as you may remember, President Vizcarra closed Congress in September last year, uh, and the new Congress is uh, really extremely populist. So our institutions have been weakened. Uh, so it's very easy to to be pessimistic about uh, uh, the situation, not just for next year, but, you know, uh, 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 in, the, in a reasonable, reasonable horizon. No? I mean, growth perspectives mm-hmm. are weaker than before, institutions are weak, and uh, our macro is maybe not as strong as it used to be. Let me, let me take you a bit from, from the present, if you want, and the immediate future, uh, and maybe talk a bit about more structural issues that are quite close to your heart and also to my heart. And you know that we, we share some time talking about that back in Argentina a couple of years ago, or a bit more, sure. which is uh, a bit more, uh, which is about structural change or the, the need for diversification in, in Latin America. You have been a quite strong advocate and also practitioner of policies, active policy for fostering uh, productive diversification and export diversification in, in your country. I would like to ask you your reflections on, on the role of these policies in, in the current situation. Are they still uh, as valid as they were when you were a minister in, in Peru? They are more needed given the exhaustion of this uh, growth model that you were describing in the case of Peru? I think they are uh, even more needed. No, um, the, the way she thinks is that. I mean, like, of course, uh, most Latin American countries have the coexistence of two main sectors, pretty much, an advanced modern sector, right, integrated into a knowledge economy, right, and um, a large group of small firms with low productivity, stagnant productivity growth, with very precarious jobs, right? The percentages of each sector vary country by country, right? That, that size of each bucket. But at the end, we have this uh, dualism, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that, of course, is, a, is not the, it's a dystopia. It's not the, it's not, it was not supposed to happen. We were supposed to, even the country have done, uh, right, their, their, their deberes, have, have done things right, like Mexico and Peru in terms of the macro front should have had the growth of the, of the modern sector that absorb workers from the right from the from the uh, non-productive sector, agriculture or or informal sector, 
and you had productivity growth and development. That didn't happen, right? And we clearly, in the case of Peru and in the case of Mexico, for example, right, did the right policies in terms of macro. So you could not, of course, we didn't get A plus, but certainly we got at least a B plus or A minus in terms of a macro of the macro right uh, uh, assignments. So that tells you that there's something that needs to be done to uh, to, to 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 change things. And what you have seen, in my view, is that a collective failure. Right, government has failed clearly in the sense of inability to provide public goods and services necessary to reduce this uh, right dualism. And also the market has, the private sector, the market has failed, right? Because uh, it was supposed to be that you follow these orthodox policies, March by you know, Washington consensus, you had this uh, uh, growth of the modern sector that absorbed the, 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 the informal sector. It hasn't happened. So we have, we are in a situation where we need something different. And because everybody fails, doesn't mean that we have to give up. And I, I would say there are, of course, uh, different alternatives to try. Mm-hmm. One temptation is almost like going back to the welfare state, right? Trying to give subsidies to everybody, which is in a way what Mexico is doing, right? I mean, like it subsidize uh, and give cash transfers uh, directly, but that does not constitute a development model. That's not, right, you are not going to increase productivity in a way to sustain a, a growth over the longer term. So you need to address the underlying constraints to growth and, uh, and the productivity growth and uh, the welfare, right, the uh, reform and welfare, going back to welfare state uh, is not going to work. Remember that the, the neoliberal, right, model is a result of the failure of the previous model, which, which was more related to the welfare right, state. So I, I would say that what we need uh, is, in my view, and it goes probably, I don't even know if we call it any more just PDPs. It's really, right, a really massive uh, a process of collaboration between the public and the private sector, almost for everything for providing infrastructure, for providing education, health, and certainly, right, the public goods necessary for, 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 a, for a productive diversification. In terms of just productive diversification and productivity, I think our countries have two main challenges. I mean, like I, I call them like the macro challenges. One is how do you sophisticate your uh, uh, economic uh, activities based on what you do well, which is mostly natural resources for most of our countries. How do we use uh, natural resources as a platform, right, mm-hmm. to sophisticate our, uh, our uh, economic activity? I don't think we can start and say, we're going to industrialize. That model may work for Asia, doesn't work for Latin America. We, use, we need to use what we have, which is our natural resources, but beware that yes, if you leave them alone, it's not going to be enough. So that's the reason you probably need productive development policy too for this macro challenge. And the other main challenge, which again is a, is the pool depend, the size will depend on the country, is 
uh, what I call the, the macro challenge of productive inclusion. How do you insert into dynamic value chains a lot of these uh, small firms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you basically have a lot of these guys who are in the informal economy that are not part of any dy dynamic value chain. And, and, and one of the reasons is not necessarily what my um, uh, compatriot De Soto says, which is uh, just a lot of tramits and right bureaucracy and, and uh, right, the municipal licenses. It's a lot more than that. They just mm -hmm. cannot achieve the quality standards, the environmental standards, the labor standards, the, uh, right, the phytosanitary standards, the ethical standards that the formal economy or the, or the global economy uh, demands, right? So if you are not able to achieve those standards, you cannot sell in the, in the dynamic economy. And um, so you need to think of policies uh, to achieve what we have talked with Chuck Sable uh, is a quality hurdle. So the, the, there's this a big group of firms in an informal economy that are not subsistence, so are beyond subsistence, but have not all the capabilities to be able to sell into dynamic value chains. And it can be in agriculture and, right, I mean, in a cattle raising, aquaculture, and some manufacturing. And you need to identify what are the problems. Some cases is just, uh, right, access to water, access mm -hmm. to some basic infrastructure, some technological change, access to, the, uh, to finance, right? You need to see where it is. But I think, like, there is a need to try to work with those small firms uh, and probably in association with a large uh, right, uh, firm that can help them, right, uh, can be suppliers to a large firm to see what uh, can be done. Chile had some success with uh, the suppliers programs and mm -hmm. uh, Corfo, and I think like that's a very promising area and we have seen it in Peru as well very recently, just this year actually, where we are seeing how you can work with some of these firms that actually have many capabilities. So, so right now they look at they're in the informal sector, but actually have a lot of the capabilities to thrive in the formal sector under, under the right conditions, right? But of course, if government doesn't do anything, nothing happens. Because to invest in the capabilities to, 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 to pass the quality hurdle requires investment and resources that they don't have. No, no, I, I wanted to, to comment on that, where you were describing this, this type of policies. One thing that Ernesto Steins and other colleagues at ADB and you and, and myself, we have been working a lot on these PDPs or, or whatever you want to call it. But we see that the kind of missing link always in Latin America is in the government or state capabilities. And also related to that, on the, on the stability of these policies. What you see, and I think that happened in Peru, when the Minister of Production or Minister of Industry changes, usually the, the way the government works in this area also changes. And that kind of jeopardizes these policies, which are by definition uh, long-term policies that entail massive changes in the productive structure. So, I mean, how, how you can engage and how you can deliver these policies that are so complicated that needs the coordination across so many areas in the government in a sustainable way with such a, a, a you know weak states in most of the parts of the region. Do you think is it possible to kind of 
uh, reach some kind of, instead of macro stability, productive stability in terms of productive policies? Yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard question. <laughs> I think I, I, I would say that the main reason that happens is that people have not become convinced. Uh, I would say that in the case of Peru, uh, the establishment really was convinced about the need of macro stability, was not that convinced about the need of these sort of development policies. I would say that state capabilities, of course, I mean, are, 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 are a binding constraint, but uh, I would say that uh, it's not the most uh, limiting constraint. Uh, because capabilities, state capabilities are built while doing. So if you start doing stuff, I mean, we were, I mean, right now we have a clear example in Peru with the, the centers of, for, for innovation, right? Uh, where they were, they were not doing stuff. Now they are start to become articulators of value chains, right? And in the, in the process, they are doing this stuff. And I would say one of the problems of 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 of, uh, of the class, I mean, the, the experience in Latin America is that a lot of the coordination problems that you mentioned are at the local level. I mean, we really a lot of the coordination failures are at the local level. A lot of the cluster policies that have been right advocated in Latin America actually work reasonably well when those problems are solved at the local level. But once in a while, quite often, I would say, you need to be able to elevate those problems to the uh, national level, right? So there's this complementarity because if I write, some problems are solved locally, but sometimes I need the decision of government. And I don't know if many governments outside Uruguay probably have really become become convinced about the the right the um, the need of this sort of of, of of development policy as you said I mean they're like having individual efforts of ministers who've started but then if the establishment did not uh, uh, buy the idea of the continuity of course things uh, stop very quick uh, very quickly but I would say that um more convinced now than before that, you know, like the existing model hasn't delivered what we needed. And we need to use this pandemia to realize that we need to start a process of cooperation uh, between the public and the private sector that, as I said, that goes beyond just productive development policies, but, is part, but also in uh, PDPs. We have started to see this uh, significant. I mean, like recently in Peru, and I, 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 I hope this lasts the change in government. But of course, it's always a risk. But uh, regardless, what's the alternative? I think we need to think of right. I mean, like if we don't try this, what can we try? Like we know that just that horizontal policies are not enough. We know that if we do not as, uh, address the issue of productivity. Uh, we are not going to go very far. So what alternative for beyond, I mean, like you see all these uh, multilateral institutions, right? I mean, like uh, with all this, I mean, like with, the, I mean, the, uh, you, you mentioned Ernesto and IDB, but beyond a small group at the IDB, I mean, like all these policy recommendations are strengthen institutions, build human capital, close that infrastructure gap, right? I mean, like uh, 
the last uh, World Bank report on productivity has a lot of, right, a, a list of uh, very general recommendations, right, that are not enough. You need to go to the details, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and it's, of course, so my, my view is that you have to, to see how do you leverage the discipline and capabilities of the private sector with the balance sheet, right, and ability to enact laws and norms and regulations from the public sector. That so so you need to be make you need to make it the least right dependent on just huge government capabilities, right? And that's mm -hmm. part of the part of the so finance has to be clear clearly a, a a very important part of the of the solution, but very right smart finance. But uh, uh, so how do you and and, and I, I strongly believe that. You need to strengthen not only the cooperation between public sector and private sector, but also within the private sector between uh, like big firms and small suppliers, and mm -hmm. and and that allows the discipline. When you have just small firms with government, you run the risk of doing policies that don't have demand. Right? There's mm -hmm. no market demand, so you right there's a lot of creativity, and you create some products, but now nobody wants to buy them. When you have the the, the smaller tractora, right, the uh, the tractor uh, in in a value chain, the tractor already has knows the client, knows the customer, and knows what uh, what what it uh, right the requirements that need to get from the suppliers. So you need to to focus on those value chains. I am uh, increasingly convinced, and that happens a lot at the territorial level. Just a final question, and, and you were basically commenting that populism is also knocking the door in, in, in Peru and also maybe in the Chile, neighbor yeah. in Chile. And, and, and I mean, I was to, wanted to ask you about the, the region is kind of entering a kind of dangerous waters, you know, because I mean, even in the best scenario, the region is going to have the government quite, you know, sustainably um, um, damage balance sheets in the government, but also firms high levels of debt, and most likely in terms of growth, uh, GDP growth potential is going to be diminished, and maybe the region is going to come back to the level that was in terms of uh, production, maybe back in three, four years' time. So uh, how do you see that? I mean, because, I mean, even the countries that have been successful on the macroeconomic front and have created these independent institutions, the central bank and also uh, fiscal laws, etc. We see that they are also struggling with this uh, uh, problem in Latin America of you know a mismatch between massive demands that are increasing with the level of income per capita, uh, at the same time ever and ever diminishing capability from the government to provide uh, the goods and services the population is demanding. So if you can comment on that, what's your view on on what's going on? Even if Latin America gets out of this uh, terrible pandemic. Yeah, I think we probably will get out one way or another out of this uh, pandemic. But clearly, what you comment is a, a very significant, uh, more than a risk, right? I mean, we already had a plebiscite in Chile or during the weekend. I think for Peru, the writing is on the wall. I think we are going to write the, 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 the request for changing the constitution from Fujimori looks so similar to changing the constitution from Pinochet that... Uh, that is appealing. I don't think it's going to solve much because the problems in Peru have little to do with the constitution and what 
uh, a lot more to do with our collective inabilities, I say, to provide the public goods and services needs for the population. So yes, the risks are uh, are very large because uh, the type of policies that I am convinced and we, when we have seen it to the macro level, they can work very well, require time, patience, and and and. and and, and 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 to have people convinced and uh, and that's not very right uh, uh, prevalent in latin america so i would say outside uruguay because i think uruguay is the country that has but by far has the largest probability of 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 becoming developed in latin america outside uruguay uh, uh, the the rest of the region runs the risk of right of falling into this uh, trap of populist policies, uh, weaker institutions, weaker macro, and inability to growth and inability to provide public services. So yes, I mean, like uh, it, it can be a terrible decade. I mean, even worse than the previous one. Uh, for some countries that, as you said, like uh, clearly Peru and Chile, uh, were up until now, right, macro stars, right, at different uh, development stages, but both countries, right, uh, uh, doing the right stuff in theory, but clearly with uh, clear weaknesses. I do not know if the reaction to the neoliberal model uh, is going to be the right reaction, which is right, this uh, cooperation of the public and the private sector, or is going to be more of a Mexican type subsidies and right and. Uh, uh, that I don't think is going to take us too far away. We need a development model, uh, and there is a development model that could work based on our strengths. I don't know if we're going to have the political and the collective will to to follow it. So the risks are uh, are there, and uh, and and, uh, and 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 yeah, I mean, it's very easy to be pessimistic. With this pessimist note, <laughs> with that pessimist note, we we finalize the interview and. Thank you, Pierre. It has been really a pleasure talking to you, going from macro to micro, from the, the present to the immediate future, but also the long-term challenges and, and also opportunities that the region has. Because, I mean, just to finalize in a kind of positive and optimistic note, you basically said we are in a region which is rich in natural resources, which has shown a massive success in the last 20 decades, 28 years in terms of achieving macro stability in many countries in the region and we have an opportunity even though there are the risks around there for sure there is an opportunity for escaping from, from the trap exactly. there's a path there's a path of both of us who believe in this sort of policies right exactly. of public private cooperation we need to i mean we, know, we can't give up we need just to, we need to continue right uh, uh, finding ways of working them This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at lap at wilsoncenter.org. Thanks for listening.